Hello, and welcome to the Organizing for Change podcast. The goal of this podcast is to equip coalitions, organizations, and individuals to bring change to their communities. The host of the Organizing for Change podcast is the coalition coordinator for Avon, Massachusetts, Amanda Decker. Thank you for listening. Welcome to episode 31 of the Organizing for Change podcast, where our goal is to equip coalitions, organizations, and individuals to bring change to their community. It is incredible to continue to see this podcast grow, and that would not be possible without all of you sharing and getting the word out. So thank you so much for your support. Don't forget about our new Facebook group, simply called Coalition Coordinators. The group is designed as a resource for substance use prevention coalition coordinators. And I really hope you join us and prevention coordinators around the globe for ideas, discussion, and support. This month's shout out goes to our producer, Ed Rand. This is his last show, and I just want to let him know that we're just so grateful for all the work that he's put into this show uh, since it's begun. It would not be a success today without him, so thank you. And so now, welcome to episode 31, where I interviewed Christina Clark of KM Clark Consulting. Christina is the CEO of her own company, and before opening her consulting company, she was the executive director of the Coffee County Anti-Drug Coalition for over 10 years in Tennessee. Ms. Clark has dedicated herself to nonprofit work since graduating from Middle Tennessee State University in May of 2006 with a Bachelor of Science in Psychology and minor in Mental Services and Sociology. She is a Certified Prevention Specialist and has trained coalitions throughout Tennessee on the prevention of alcohol and drug abuse as well as nonprofit management and capacity building. Under her leadership, the coalition achieved several awards and grants, including drug-free communities funding years 1 through 10, the National Got Outcomes Coalition and Focus Award from CADCA, the Tennessee Department of Health's Injury Prevention Award in 2012, and a 2014 Patriotic Employer Award from the Office of the Secretary of Defense Employer Support of the Guard and Reserve. With community collaboration and staff teamwork, she has been able to achieve community-level change regarding substance use behaviors on a county-wide scale, including successfully advocating for local and state policy change. As an advocate for diversifying funds for nonprofit sustainability, she recently led her community coalition in trademarking and marketing a successful comprehensive prescription drug campaign, Count It, Lock It, Drop It, which provided the nonprofit foundation money for the future, as well as assisted counties throughout the country in reducing prescription drug abuse. Christina is also an executive board member for the Prevention Alliance of Tennessee, a statewide prevention legislation advocacy organization. She was raised throughout the United States as a proud Air Force brat. Ms. Clark has now made Tennessee home base with her husband and best friend, Michael Clark, and their furry canine children, Max and Sammy. Without further ado, my conversation with Christina Clark. 
Well, welcome Christina Clark to the Organizing for Change podcast. We're so excited to have you on today. Um, I'm just delighted to be able to find you and your story, and I think that this conversation is really going to help a lot of folks out today. Thank you so much for having me. I've been excited to speak with you and hopefully share some tips and tricks and just look forward to, to speaking with you all. That's awesome. So you have your own consulting company, but maybe you could start with telling us kind of where you started with all of this in the coalition world and how you came to be. So like, who is Christina Clark and how did she get to be here? Yeah, so I actually started my career in nonprofit work straight out of college. I, in college, worked um, on a peer counseling hotline um, for rape victims starting at Florida State University, and then really knew I wanted to do something in nonprofit work, and particularly domestic violence advocacy in the beginning. And when I graduated with a degree in psych and mental health services, I went into working um, with survivors of domestic violence. And of course, with that work, really saw the effects of drugs and alcohol on these families and some of the violence happening in the homes. And so was able to really take what I was learning there and then what I found, which was my new love of nonprofit management, and started to, to seek other positions that were available to me in the field of nonprofit work. And um, I had the opportunity to take on being executive director of the Coffee County Anti-Drug Coalition in Tennessee. We're smack dab between Chattanooga and Nashville and took on that role for for about 11 years before transitioning into a consulting role where we really focused on nonprofit sustainability and leadership and really about not just fundraising, but how you can build nonprofits like businesses so they continue to be able to do the great work they're doing in their communities for not just one year or two years or the length of a grant, but for the length of the passion that and the need in the community. Wow, I have so many questions now just as a result of that. Um, so you just spoke about how you work with coalitions to kind of think more like businesses and use that model. What, what do you mean by that? And kind of what's the difference between how people are traditionally thinking in this work and where do they need to move to and maybe why? Yeah, so I think with any nonprofit work, we all have a ton of heart and passion for the work we're doing, and that's why we get into it. And we have volunteers and board members who feel the same way. And at the same time, though, we can lose track of really building a sustainable business model when we're doing that because we are so focused on meeting whatever need needs to be met in our community, whether it's someone needs food or there is substance use issues happening, that we get really focused on what are the strategies that we can implement and do it quickly. And really what what I've found is taking that passion and drive and matching it with real business background and components, whether you're looking at the life cycle of a product when, when companies are developing big products, whether it's a new phone or a new shampoo, and really looking at how you can market it, how you can get people behind it, and also just looking at how they view their fee structure even, that nonprofits need to be doing the same thing. So we're not just focused on this federal grant or this state grant or maybe this fundraiser that we're doing, but instead looking at everything we implement as an opportunity to figure out, A, how we can do it better and how can we monetize it or find other people who want to invest in it so it continues? And it sounds like your coalition was kind of able to do some of that. I read a lot about your um, 
your prescription drug campaign. Do you mind telling us a little bit about that and just kind of how that evolved and how you were able to really make it into something that's helping the coalition sustain itself over the long haul? Yeah, of course. So like so many other coalitions who we developed a an initiative around one of our substance use issues and we kind of knew that it was something really special because it was catchy at the time and it also brought all of our partners together and really fulfilled the evidence-based strategies that we were looking at at the time. It was hitting a lot of boxes. It was catchy. The community got it. It was really member-based. And what we found was, along with a lot of the other work we were doing, we were really seeing substantial changes in our community around prescription drug abuse, particularly around 30-day use rates of our 12- to 24-year-olds and um, increased uh, perception of harm around drug safety and, like, the fact you shouldn't be sharing or self-medicating, and then a dec- uh, an increase, uh, sorry, a decrease in access to prescription drugs as well. And once we worked with our evaluation team and really saw that we were able to make this movement and that we had these products that we had developed, whether promotional items or the idea that we had policies that had really been put in that worked with medical facilities, we put it all together into to one package and started talking to other coalitions and other partners about it. We trademarked and copy, copyrighted all the work that we did. And then we started talking to a partner. So we got our state involved and they decided to fund it with several of the coalitions, the department of health, we got involved and they wanted to fund it with health councils. And then we were able to apply for statewide funding uh, with blue cross blue shield, who was able to fund it for every county in our state, which is 95 counties. And then we started reaching out to other states. So we're in nine states in total that either they're doing a statewide campaign like Rhode Island with Count It, Lock It, Drop It, Mm -hmm. or their individual communities taking it on and able to implement it. So really what we did was take something that worked well and then made it so it was a supply and a marketable material that we could sell to other coalitions or nonprofits. That's fantastic. And I just was thinking kind of about your personal journey during all this. So you started out as the coordinator and then you transitioned at one point kind of to do more of a consulting role. And I was just thinking about just the transition of the coalition itself. So maybe just obviously there's a new leader there now and just kind of during that journey, how did you help the coalition itself just be ready for that kind of transition and, you know, succession plan? And was there anything specific that you did or was it kind of like you stayed on in the role of consulting? Uh, What did all of that look like? Yeah, and we definitely had some ups and downs with that. I think no matter how well you play in when you've had someone leading a coalition like that for so long, regardless of who it is, there's going to be some hiccups along the way when you have someone in a role for 10 plus years and they've done it a certain way and people are used Mm -hmm. to it. When you transition to a new leader, even if they're well-trained, there's ups and downs. So we definitely had mistakes we made along the way. We had an incredible coordinator that was under me that took over in the role of executive director when I left. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, she decided to move on soon after to stay home with her babies, which was great. But that's really where we kind of had our first hiccup because other than the fact that she had been with us for seven years, we really hadn't trained anyone else up in that role. So it became, how do we find a new leader to take this on? And I did move into a consulting role where I was at least assisting with the grants management and still helping with Count It, Lock It, Drop It, because 
yeah. we developed that that program really in order because we knew DFC was ending. We were in year four of DFC at the time. We ended up not having um, a break in funding and went six through ten, but we wanted to have some type of rebound. This really provided that excess funding stream that we needed in our community. So it was a lot at the time for any director to take on to have basically what is a whole other side business on top of the great work the coalition was doing. So I stayed on at the time to really assist them and making sure everything kept running in terms of just paperwork, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, after we, we lost the prevention coordinator, that's when we really did have our first hiccup of how do we bring in additional leadership and really who stepped up to the plate. And, and this really does speak to why it's so important to involve your board members and let everyone the coalition needs to know what's happening is our, co- our board members really stepped up. And our treasurer and our board chair um, and vice chair, our executive committee really stepped up and started leading the coalition and the staff members that were there until a, a director could be found that could really take the helm and lead the coalition the way it needed to be led from that point on. That's awesome. So, like, when you're thinking of some of the things that coalition should really be doing now or maybe not be doing, um, kind of like the do's and don'ts, what would you say that a coalition should be thinking of or doing in the leadership succession planning like right now? I think transparency is the biggest issue. Um, okay. Making sure that every all your board members understand what is happening in the coalition and you're sharing not just simple things like the budgets and that everyone thinks of, but even, I mean, things that came up like you, everyone needs to know the passwords and there needs to be a lock filing cabinet that has all of those in there for all the million of different places that you need, whether it's your Dropbox accounts and your websites and all of that in one place. And there also just needs to understand the strategies that are being implemented, the cost of those strategies outside of just the general budget, and and really who are the working partners. And so I think the more that you can involve your coalition members and your board in the everyday work of the coalition so that they understand all that entails is so important because then even when leadership switch, everyone else knows their role. And that's why having those job descriptions or memorandums of understanding or however you have developed your coalition, everyone really does know their role and their part moving forward and that are really part of the whole entire coalition. And it isn't just about one leader because no matter how great a leader is eventually going to move on and you can't take everything out of their head and put it into someone else. So the more that on a daily basis everyone's part of the work, the better. So making sure your coalition members are trained, making sure they're engaged in the work on a daily basis is also important to succession planning. So good. And when you say involved in like the day-to-day, was there kind of like a specific method that you did? Or like, did you email all these folks every day? Were you like, how were you getting them involved in that day-to-day? It really, we instituted, and we had taken this from a coalition in Rhode Island years ago, is short-term action teams. For for our community, committees were a dirty word. It didn't work for us. It works for a lot of people, but they always say you have to figure out what works for your coalition and your community. The short-term action teams was our answer to that, that we could know that this is something that needs to happen. We know that we have this much going on this month. These are the exact tasks, and even if it's like, okay, not just saying we're going to develop this brochure, but saying we need someone to do this image, and we just need you for two hours to come in and help with this image or this edit, and really making everything into digestible pieces. So it wasn't asking a group of people to come in and really just develop the whole website or something. Mm -hmm. It was really about let's figure out all the steps 
that it takes to make this bigger thing happen and, and have lots of little roles for people that are really easy for them to engage in and be involved in that end up with a completed plan that everyone had a piece of. That's so good. I'm actually, I'm working with a group right now and they're writing for the, um, the drug free communities grant and, uh, the grant in itself just looks like a huge, massive undertaking, but their group really broke it down into like really small, like you said, steps, you know, I need two hours for you to do this small piece. And, um, it's so interesting how many people will step up and say yes, when it's, it's simple and a small task and they're actually the people that usually come back and say okay I did that I'd love to do more. Yeah and you're exactly right it's it's little wins that they feel like they really contributed to every you know coalition work is hard a lot of times it's two steps forward three steps back and it is so process oriented that we're waiting a long time to be able to make it into parts that people can have these little wins and that coalitions can celebrate Mm -hmm. and then and I think it's important that, as you mentioned, not just sending out an email to involve people, but having individual asks. Like I always say, for every coalition member and board member, you're constantly dating or courting them. And so it's yeah. really important not to just send out a blanket email, but to say, hey, Ken, I, you are great at this. I've, I've seen your expertise. I really need you. Can you come in for this one hour and I can talk to you about this? Or I really need you at this meeting. Could you lead this group? Because I know they're going to respond to you. And really having those individual asks for small things are so important to building them up for their confidence in the work we're doing. But just to engage them and make them feel celebrated and worthy, which is, you know, part of the battle when you're leading coalition is to really make people feel like what they're doing matters. That's so true. I know something, too, like, it's so good. You said no blanket emails. And I know... I mean, I think everyone's guilty of that at some point. You know, you sent the massive email. Hey, everybody, be at this. And um, I just started writing down, like, when are when do we have the best attendance at different things? And it's when I've taken the time to, like, personally, individually call or email someone and ask them to be there and say, I need you specifically at this meeting to do this thing. You know, can you take the time out to do that? And then, you know, the times where I've, I guess, gotten lazy and just said, here's the mass email. Oh, my gosh, we have a meeting next week. Just send it out. And then you have, you know, four people that come. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, it's, and you're and you're right. We all do it because it's hard. Like there's, it's a lot of work that goes into coalition building on a daily basis and leadership. So much of it is us just continuing to ha- to build relationships all the time. Yeah. So when you think of like those leadership practices, you know, for especially for some of our new coalition um, coordinators, like what kind of practices do you think should, or maybe somebody who's thinking of transitioning out, like what kind of practices really should be in place to train up these staff and train up these coalition members and board members? One of the first things we did when we really started engaging our board was making a board policy that a board member had to attend some coalition-based training every year. And so that at least started making our board members have to engage in training, whether it was going to a mid-year or a forum with CADCA or it was going to a local level state training that was on coalition work, we really started to engage them in understanding prevention, evidence-based prevention, the science of it, and, and then also you have to be willing then if you're going to train them to take their ideas as they mm-hmm. come up, because they're going to they're gonna come up with them. And then same thing with the coalition. We made sure that we always had opportunities when our state passed to have uh, certified prevention specialists okay. in Tennessee 
we went to each of our partners and like, who would you have in your school system that could be trained as a prevention specialist? And we'll help support that because the one thing we thought about was sustainability speaking, if we have every, like the law enforcement has someone who's certified in prevention, every school system does, it's going to continue the sustainability of our work that people who know about prevention and evidence-based prevention are in each of those sectors. So we really went out and tried to find which school counselors could we help get trained, which law enforcement officers could get trained in prevention, you know, really looking at our sectors who could come to the table and do that. And, and then we also just started doing an annual rural prevention conference in our community, which we invited partners to, and most of our coalition members would either be part of planning mm-hmm. or at the very least would be coming and getting trained at these events, which would be a two-day conference that brought in prevention specialists to come and train on many different topics, including grant writing and, you know, whether it's great vaping policies for school systems or cutting-edge stuff that's happening with the opioid epidemic and really allow as many opportunities to train coalition members just on what really great prevention looks like. Yeah. And then at meetings, really having those action-oriented meetings where people are working on these tasks the whole entire time and we're kind of practicing what we preach. So training them and then letting them utilize those skills at at meetings. That's awesome. And then, so I'm thinking it just having people in the room who are trained and like know what they're talking about instead of depending on you all the time uh, must really have changed the dynamic of the coalition. It it really did because, and and I know we've all struggled this, you know, prevention has changed so much over the years, and we know that scare tactics don't work now, Mm -hmm. and we know a lot of those other things, but our community members who have only seen the same thing and aren't entrenched in prevention, they haven't had the opportunity to see what really works. And so by letting them hear it from different people, not just the coalition director or leadership, and letting them really get their hands dirty in what great prevention looks like, allow some of those other things to kind of get us off topics sometimes um, to really lead in. And they kind of weed themselves out. They're like, oh, I thought this would be a great idea, but then we went and did this. So I think if we tweak it this way, or I, I found this policy change, and it really does help lead them to thinking more about environmental strategies and community change so that you're staying more on topic at coalition meetings and having more power with the strategies you're implementing. So good. And when you think about, so yeah, let's talk policy then for a second. So you have the coalition there and just the coalition's looking at their local conditions. So what are some of those ways that they can look at those uh, local coalition, I mean, conditions and kind of like uncover, oh, these, this should be a policy change. Like, how did you, how did you do that? Well, and I think that's what's so important about involving them in the beginning and letting them, especially I was not someone who was born and raised in the community in which I was leading. I'm an Air Force brat and have lived all over. So I was a transplant and, quite frankly, a Yankee to a Southern community (laughs) um, coming from Massachusetts to Tennessee. And so I think it helped because I allowed them to lead me in a lot of ways through all the different political dynamics and, and the different history and really listen to them about the history without coming in with any preconceived notions, Mm -hmm. which I think even if you are from your community, making sure you're having those conversations, especially when you're getting into policy change and looking at local level conditions, is understanding truly what your community looks like and what they've struggled with. For instance, in our community at the time, there's two different cities within the county, and they have totally different views on the community. Um, and so, yeah, and so understanding one of them very much comes from a farming background. They're traditional tobacco farmers. The other one has an aerospace 
um, Engineering Development Center. They are very much, there's a high population of PhDs in the area, so they're very different communities within the same county. Mm. And so it, they see things very differently. And knowing that and going in and figuring out policy change, it depends on which population we're talking to, how we're going to, to deal with that policy change. Absolutely. And so <clears throat> looking at local conditions, first understanding the history behind it before going after policy, but then after that, letting them lead what that that really looks like. Because, for instance, for us, when we started looking at social hosting, we had a law in Tennessee that was a social hosting law. It wasn't being implemented. Um, it was really kind of focused on the 18 to 20-year-old kind of college age populations instead of, you know, parents hosting for teens. Mm-hmm. And we were like, well, we want a social hosting ordinance. How do we get people on board with this? We see that you know, parents are hosting underage drinking parties. And it was happening in all three of our kind of city, county areas that we covered. Sure. Uh, and the first thing we did was bring everyone to the table for the first time. So we had all the mayors and one, three mayors, you know, three police chiefs and the DEA all in one room. It was the first time in the history all of them had sat down together. Wow. And they all came, you know, kind they were all willing but at the same time you could tell that like who's going to get in trouble or like why are we all here yeah. uh, and really we were under the impression that we were going to pass a social host ordinance that we were working towards an ordinance and what we really figured out by sitting there and listening and talking about what was happening around social hosting and why it wasn't being prosecuted was because the DA who's sitting there was saying I'm not having enough information or the right information to prosecute once people are being arrested for it. And because they weren't being prosecuted, police didn't want to arrest for it anymore because they didn't see an impact they were having. And it really took a practice change in the end, not an ordinance of police reporting in a way and providing the information that the DA needed to actually prosecute the case effectively. Wow. That just perfectly explains, like, why coalitions work, you know, because I think it's it's so easy to just assume that everybody's doing whatever you came up with in your head until you actually sit down and talk to them. You know, that communication piece is vital and just building relationship because I'm sure that was kind of a big surprise to everybody in the room. It was. We, we, I even went in not knowing that's where we were going to end up. And it's really, like you said, it speaks to the power of coalitions because it isn't just about these big policy changes we're going to pass, you know, no smoking here, or, you know, alcohol density. It really is trying to figure out some of the best policy kind of practice changes, these small P's that we can do at a mm. community level. That made a huge impact on us being able to prosecute, being able to reduce some of the underage drinking parties we were having. And it really was just bringing people together and being like, oh, okay, well then let's figure out how we can do this and report better, put it into practice in the police stations and their departments and then we have a win and it's a quick win right right yeah and i it's it's interesting you say that too because i find that you know whenever i hear like a lot of criticism you know oh the police don't do this the school doesn't do this like people usually criticize what they don't know and when you get into a room and you really start to like learn from the other people that criticism and ask questions instead of assume that you know what's going on and why something is or isn't being done and you come at it like from a humble place and you just start asking questions like those aha moments really do happen mm-hmm. no yeah, definitely and, no go ahead <laughs> no and i no i totally agree with you it's really coming from this question-based approach 
because I do think a lot of times it, because we're so passionate, we can have blaming, whether we're saying it's parents or it's law enforcement or you said mm. schools. But having those conversations, a lot of times something isn't happening because they haven't seen a win from it or they don't have the resources to do it. You, or, you know, they're being pushed politically. And if you just have the discussion, sometimes it's like, oh, we can provide that training. Right. Or, oh, I see, I wouldn't want to push, you know, arrest people that were never being prosecuted either. Mm-hmm. So having those conversations and coming from that question-based approach, as you mentioned, is really important to that engagement and change. It's funny. I even notice this, like, on a personal level, too. Like, I can, like, the people who are always seem to be the experts at parenting are the people that don't have the kids. You know, once <laughs> you have the kids, you're like, wow, that is definitely, I completely judged, you know, how somebody, like, my kids are never going to throw a tantrum. My kids are never going to do X, Y, Z. And then you have them, and you're like, wow, never mind. Like, I'm just going to ask questions and uh, not assume I know the answer. Yes, as a mother to a three-year-old, yes, but I totally understand that. That's so true. Um, so thinking about um, just kind of some tips when you all thought of sustainability, obviously you made some incredible changes and did some great work. Um, maybe some tips for people who are thinking they're in that year three or in that year four and they're just you know, we're all supposed to have the sustainability plan and maybe their plans kind of still on paper. Like where, how would you motivate people and help them kind of really start making sure that they're looking at this and thinking about their future? I, the first thing that we did and it was really powerful for us was, and I'm a visual person, so this is some of it, was take our budgets and, and just put it into a pie chart format where we're saying this much is coming from drug-free communities, this month is coming from our state, and then looked at it and said, okay, you know, over 50% of our funding is coming from drug-free communities. We need our pie to be very equal so that if anyone, if we lose any piece of that pie, that our organization is still standing. And for Mm -hmm. me, that was the really visual, especially for our board to see, even if you don't know every exact number as a board member, that seeing it in that pie to say, okay, if we lost drug-free communities tomorrow, that means we're losing most of our our coalition funding. Mm -hmm. And to realize that now we have to say, okay, how can we break this into more pieces of the pie and get more sustainability so there's lots of legs, so to speak, under the coalition? And then from there, think about what are those other ways. And one of the best ways to do it, not just raising funds or grants, is to think about ways you can leverage support. And I always say this, if you're doing something really well, and it's working, and you've evaluated it, and you know it's working, then why are you the only one funding it? And that's why if you're doing something like compliance checks that you've been supporting for years or or anything like that, sobriety checkpoints or any of those law enforcement, what are there other ways that you can go back and say, okay, we've done this, and it's working, so we want you to be a part of it. Is there a line item we can be in the government budget? Mm. Is there, or can we go to law enforcement and say, can we share some equal weight in this now that we've shown this is really effective? Yeah. And, and going back to even like school systems, we had um, a moral recognition therapy program that we were working with in the alternative schools. And we thought about from the beginning sustainability with that program. We can fund training someone, but we can't continue this every day. And so right. we made sure we trained counselors in the school systems, and then the schools went after funding for supplies for that program. Yeah. 
And then local businesses supported, there's a token economy where kids could get, you know, soccer balls or gift cards to local restaurants, their families. And so then we brought in the chamber to support that side of the program. So we didn't just look at the organization as a whole and say, okay, these pieces of pie, but then we looked at each individual strategy that we were doing that we could prove was effective and say, okay, how can we have other people support this? How can we leverage that support? And I think like telling that story is so important, like, you know, making sure that people continually hear like, you know, this, we did this and it worked. Um, You know, you don't want to lose that. I think that's really powerful. Well, and I think when we think about the strategic prevention framework, which we, we base our work on, we, we think about it really holistically in our organization. Like we have to do assessment of the community. We have to go through this planning process, but we forget to use sometimes that same process with each individual strategy we're implementing. And if you're doing that along the way, you're figuring, you're making sure you're evaluating it the whole entire time and reassessing it and building capacity. And that alone allows you, once you get to a point where you're like, we might lose certain funding, you've already built the structure to really move it to someone else at that point. It's really good. So when you think of, you, you've been part of the coalition field for a while, what what would you say was like one of your bigger challenges or your things that you were like, wow, that was really tough and maybe just, you know, let people know what specifically you did to kind of overcome that? I would say, and it, it always goes back to capacity building. For me, I don't, the, the most important thing for coalition work is continue to build comp- capacity and partnerships because that as you mentioned is what makes us so strong and makes us different from so many other organizations because we're not just asking people to partner we're asking them to collaborate and be part of this process and really have ownership of it and so both of my greatest successes and probably my greatest failures have been seen in that area and so I would say that my my toughest and best learned lesson was around policy change and capacity building when we were stuck between a rock and a hard place, there was a pseudofedrin going, trying to go to prescription only in Tennessee to reduce the meth epidemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and we already had a pseudofedrin behind the counter at the time. We had just started really working on opioids in our community, so we had a very, very close relationship with our medical professionals and our pharmacies. And they were against this push. But then I had law enforcement that we've been working with for years who were on the other side, who really wanted this prescription-only pseudofedrin. And then we had a lot of outside influences coming into our small community, kind of telling us that they wanted us to push it, because there's this wave of trying to get counties to pass these ordinances to push something statewide. Yeah. And, and so we were stuck between two of our most important partners. And it was to the point that, I'm not going to lie, we were getting calls from all different states telling us that we needed to back this, or they were going to help, they were going to make sure we lost funding. It was, it was very intense. Yeah. And it became stifling because it was like, what, what am I going to do? Because we need both of these people. Right. And the right. best thing I can say is, and this is so true with, with policy work in general, was we had to come from a place of not taking a stance as much as saying what is best for our community and its partners. And what we ended up needing to do and what worked, but at the same time it was really scary, was to have these aldermen meetings where this was coming up and say, what we're going to ask of you is not to vote yes or no or to advocating either way, but to say, we want you to hear our partners and we want you to hear both pros and cons and here's what law enforcement says and here are any of the holes in their theory and here's what the pharmacy and medical um, professionals say and these are the holes or, you know, successes in theirs. And then 
have the coalition and the community make the decision for themselves. And mm-hmm. it was really difficult because a lot of times we come from a place of we have to push whatever thing in prevention is coming, especially when it's something like that that had a huge backing behind it. But for our community, it wasn't the right thing for the coalition. We would have lost partners. Yeah. And in the end, our community didn't end up backing it. It wasn't something that they wanted. And that's okay. Right. Like, right. it doesn't, you know, just because a, there's some, a national push coming in or a state push, it is so important that we remember that we're always community-based first. Mm-hmm. And listening to our people is the most important. And sometimes the answer is, no, we're not ready. Yeah. And that's okay. I and think so, we forget that, too. I mean, like, I think of even some of the things that are going on in my state right now when it comes to the marijuana dialogue like it, you, you cannot just tell people this is what we're going to do and how we're going to do it because they're hearing lots of messaging, you know, and some communities are not ready, um, you know, to move in any direction because they, they just haven't heard things out yet and haven't sat with things and haven't heard, you know, or thought about like what might be best yet. And I, I think that's really important to not force something on a coalition, I mean, a community, and just really, like, listen and be patient. You might have more work to do when it comes to capacity building. Yeah, and, and it is truly, you know, it was scary for us because I we did get a lot of heat from national and state partners for not pushing it. But at the same time, it was what was the most ethical, incredible thing to back our community, which had mm-hmm. to come first was to allow them to make the decision, us just to be the person who gave them the best information to do that. And in the end, we didn't affect our partnerships because we kept from a a standpoint of this is just information. Mm -hmm. We're providing you the best information we have, and we support both of you. And it allowed law enforcement to feel like, okay, I get it, and pharmacies to to understand it. And, you know, I think we had like one grumpy person at the end of it, Um, so you can't win them all. But the majority of it, the process worked because they were allowed. They came up to our alderman meeting. Everyone had their voice. We were allowed to have that moment where everyone felt heard, which is so important. And then the, you know, the politicians made their decision based on that. And so from that, there can be no fight or remorse about, like, everyone's kind of been heard. And I think that was the most important part. And it was, like I said, it was one of the biggest, that was a really difficult, like, three-month period in terms of how are we going to do this. And it ended up being something that, as much as it was at that time, I felt like a great failure and a stressor. Mm-hmm. In the end, we had made the best choice for our community, which is a win. That's awesome. Um, when you think of anything, I we like flew by this time, but maybe there's something that you had thought about would be really important to include on this podcast. Is there anything that we didn't get to talk about that you thought would be really helpful for people? I mean, I, I really think it hit it all. If there's... Nothing more important than thinking about sustainability on day one. And and with sustainability, it means capacity building. And I say all the time, the people who hold up the foundation, you can lose the walls of your house in terms of funding when you think about the coalition. But if you have that strong foundation of people, that capacity that have been trained and have ownership in the work we're doing, and you're building that, you are going to be able to stay for years to come. And, And if you're thinking about constantly how can we make sure other people are taking ownership of these strategies? How can we be thinking about funding and not just one year after the next and really thinking about how we can build a sustainable funding structure? You're going to continue to be successful. And I know it's not always the fun work Mm. because we want to get down to how can we save people, which, yes, is so important. But if we don't do the other part, we can't continue to have the impact we want to have. That's so good. 
If people want to know more about you or more about your consulting company, what would be the best way for them to know more about you? Um, yeah, so you can email me at any time, and I will get back to you. My email is Christina, and I am a K. So K-R-I-S-T-I-N-A dot Clark at kmclarkcg.com. Or you could feel free to call me at 931-308-2977. That's awesome. And we'll put those, uh, we'll include those in the show notes for anyone who's out there driving. Um, <laughs> we can put those in there. Uh, but it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. And I hope that we continue to be able to talk uh, because there's so many more questions I jotted down that I didn't get to get to. Well, thank you so much. It's such an honor. And I'm just glad to be able to share any information. And I always learn just as much from from coalitions is I feel like when I'm training them, they're supposed to learn from me. So I'm always excited to get out there and engage. I think we're better when we share. That's right. I appreciate it. You have a great day. Thank you. You too. For more information from today's podcast, check out our show notes. There you can find our contact information, social media, and website. Please get in touch with us if you have any comments or questions. And if you like today's podcast, please share it with your friends. Thanks for listening.